This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for July 15th, 2019. We've talked a lot on this show about the Islamic world, but in this podcast we have an interview with someone who has a strong interest in the topic because that's where his roots lie. Let's hear what he has to say. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. In a few minutes, we'll have this. And if you're saying that people who are opposing you are politically motivated, is there a degree to which you're politically motivated as well? I believe what I'm writing about and talking about is legitimate and honest and objective. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, maybe you can say I do have a political aspect in that, as I was saying, I believe that others, for political reasons, are suppressing it. And I believe it's necessary to have the accurate truth. That's coming up shortly. But first, I want to thank all my donors on Patreon, especially Jean-Yves Barali, who signed up as a patron since the last podcast. I really appreciate everyone who contributes. If you don't know, Patreon is basically a system that allows people to donate to the podcast a buck or two per podcast or per month. That helps me to devote more time to finding interesting guests, to doing research and that sort of thing. And if you think that you could do the same as Jean-Yves and the other donors, there's details on the website and at the end of the show. Let's do a bit of science. Maybe, like me, you've had various social media invaded by people making all sorts of complaints about something called 5G. That's the newest mobile data standard. Unless you're really special, that doesn't work on your phone yet, but the networks are being installed and newer handsets using them will be available soon, probably starting at the top end of the price range. 5G just means fifth generation. The first was basic cell phones. The second was with text messaging and so on. 4G, what most people have now, allows internet and 5G will allow you to control the space shuttle or something. If you click too far into Facebook or YouTube, you'd be forgiven for thinking that an apocalypse was planned. Something between the worst nightmares of the anti-vaxxers and those people who say that their thoughts are controlled by the CIA via a chip in their brain. So I really just want to give the basic scientific information here. 5G is data transmitted over radio waves. Just like any other form of data transmitted through the air, cell phone voice or data signals, FM radio, broadcast TV, and your home Wi-Fi. All of them are, technically, radiation. So is light, by which I mean the light that your eyes use to see the things around you, and so are magnetic waves, the ones that spin the needle in the compass. Some conspiracy theorists have been saying vague things that imply that 5G uses some weird, special type of radiation that's dangerous or untested. In reality, 5G uses frequencies that are already in use by home Wi-Fi and digital TV broadcasts. 
Sure, the content of that signal is new technology, but the content of the signal has no relevance to the frequency it's broadcast on. So where does that all collide with the radiation that we know can kill us? Basically, the electromagnetic spectrum is split into two halves, ionizing radiation and non-ionizing radiation. Non-ionizing radiation is basically too weak to strip the electrons off atoms. It doesn't create ions. Ionizing radiation is the dangerous stuff. It can knock electrons off atoms and break molecules, like your DNA, which can trigger cancer. All radiation fits on a spectrum, the electromagnetic spectrum, with lower and higher frequencies. Imagine if you could turn the dial on your radio and keep turning it. If you turned it down and down and down, you'd eventually be picking up the Earth's magnetic waves, the ones that turn the compass needle. If you could turn it up and up, you would eventually pick up light waves, first blue light, then the higher frequency of red light, and you'd turn it further and you'd get UV rays from the sun, then X-rays, and so on. But there's a breakpoint that's important to know about. It exists at a frequency just above what we can see as visible light. Light doesn't hurt us, but UV rays, radiation from the sun, can give us sunburn. This is literally radiation damage. UV rays and anything with a higher frequency, X-rays, gamma rays, they're bad news. That's why anyone giving you an X-ray wears a lead apron. And gamma rays, that's Chernobyl territory you really don't want to know. But the 5G conspiracy theorists say there's so much radiation about these days, surely that can't be good for us. They're wrong for two reasons. Firstly, non-ionizing radiation just doesn't have enough energy to do any harm. It almost doesn't matter how much of it there is. Think of ionizing radiation like being burnt by boiling water. A teaspoonful on your skin would hurt. A cupful would be bad. Throw a kettle of it over someone and they're seriously injured. Non-ionizing radiation is the equivalent of lukewarm water. It doesn't matter if it's a cupful, a bathful or a whole swimming pool full. If it's not hot, no amount of it will burn you. Secondly, humans evolved bathed in non-ionizing radiation. It's called light and magnetic waves. As it happens, the radio waves that we use for TV, radio, cell phones, 5G and so on, they are right in the middle of those two, between light and magnetic waves on the electromagnetic spectrum. The light waves around us are millions and millions of times stronger than any radio waves. Sit out on a sunny day, you can literally feel, from millions of miles away, the sun warming your skin. Magnetic waves coming from the poles of the Earth, thousands of miles away, can physically move the needle on a compass. 
the strength of even our strongest radio transmitters is a tiny fraction of either of those. So why are people obsessed with being so worried about these, not to mention the anti-vaccine hysteria? My advice is not to laugh at people like this. What they say might be wrong, but that doesn't mean it's without meaning. I think that people who obsess about technology that they don't understand are expressing an unease that they have with modernity, with their lives, with the world. Patience and listening might help. Do you agree? Do you disagree? If you want your point of view heard, email podcast at challengingopinions.com and say what you think. On the line now, I have Raymond Ibrahim. He's the author of many works, most recently a book called Sword and Scimitar, 14 Centuries of War Between Islam and the West. Um, Raymond, what's the book about? Uh, Hi, William. The book is basically... uh as the subtitle captures, it's a military history between Western civilization and Islam from the very beginning. The, the, in, in eight chapters, I focus on the eight most decisive military encounters between the two civilizations. Um, so each chapter uh, revolves around a decisive military uh, battle or siege, uh, oftentimes that had uh, major repercussions for one of one or the other of the two civilizations mm-hmm. and um you know but more than just talk about the military aspects uh, uh probably the bulk of the book really looks at what came before the battle and what came after the battle so there's a lot of historical context as well to show what what you know what initiated the fights uh, what initiated the aggression what happened to the to the uh to the vanquished um and so forth. And I think it's very eye-opening because most people, when they think of the military encounters between Islam and the West, they seem to start with the Crusades. Mm-hmm. And they really, and they essentially, that's all they focus on. When in fact, as this book will show you, the Crusades are a drop in the bucket. Um, you have almost half the book actually precedes the Crusades, and it shows um, Islamic invasions all throughout uh, the Christian West and Europe and so forth. And it shows, for instance, how when Islam came into being in the seventh century, uh, the Christian world of that time, which was much, much bigger than just Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, In fact, most of it was in North Africa, Egypt and Syria, Anatolia or Turkey, as we call today. That was really the heart of the Christian world. And all of that was conquered in just about a century uh, in the name of Islam. So that today, most people when you mention Egypt or Syria or Turkey, they have no idea that those nations were actually much more Christian than Europe was at the time, um, but they were taken. So so basically you get a lot of context. And like I said, the Crusades just appear. You really see them in context as uh, as defensive measures that were taken by the Franks and the Crusaders against the most recent Islamic Jihad manifestation, that of the Seljuk Turks, which was in neighboring Anatolia or the Byzantine realm, was literally enslaving and massacring hundreds of thousands of Christians in the years before the Crusades. And that was the context that actually caused them to go forth and, uh, you know, fight back. 
Okay. And you've written a number of books on that theme. I should say for people maybe who are wondering, and your name is intriguing, at least uh, Raymond Ibrahim, as I understand it, you come from the, you're born in the United States, but you come from the Egyptian Coptic community. About 10% of Egyptians are Christians and and they're not uh, immigrants or anything. They've been Christians in Egypt for long before they were Muslims. Um, And the Coptic church is a very old church. Am I right? Absolutely. And that's actually a perfect example of the Copts, Egypt, when Islam entered it in the year 640, it was an overwhelmingly Christian uh, civilization. The very word Copt is actually Mm -hmm. derived from the Greek word for Egyptian. If you can, you can still hear it, Egypt. Mm-hmm. So that the Gypt is kipt, kipt. Yes. That's how the Arabs pronounce it. So that's all Copt means is the indig- indigenous Egyptians who were all uh, Christian majority. So that's another example. And, you know, you pointed out they're now about 10 percent. Correct. And uh, in the history in Sword and Scimitar and other histories and other places, you can find you can see how they went from being, you know, 90 plus percent of the population to being 10 percent. And it's basically uh, when you hear about Islamic attacks on Copts in the news and their churches are being bombed or burned or banned, uh, that is an ongoing reflection of what happened throughout history to cause so many Coptic Christians to actually embrace Islam. And it's the same story with North Africa from Morocco all the way to Libya. Those areas were, again, as I said, the heart of Christianity. Someone Mm -hmm. like St. Augustine, you know, the father of Western theology, comes from North Africa. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, You know, Tunisia or Algeria, yes. Right, right. And um, it's the same thing everywhere. The five, you had five ecclesiastical centers in the uh, pre-modern era, Rome, was the only one never to be conquered by Islam. All the other four were conquered, and this includes Alexandria, Antioch, Jerusalem, and Constantinople. And that just gives you a a reflection of how much Islam was a threat to Christian civilization in the early era. And yet, unfortunately, we don't get that. Everything is presented in a vacuum, and modern-day historians will tell you that Islam and, and the West, or Christendom, were at peace until the Crusaders decided to invade uh, you know, the Middle East and uh, apparently colonize it and so forth. Much of it is anachronized by modern day historians. But as I said, you see, it was a, just a, a life and death struggle for well over a millennium. And this struggle, it's interesting. What I found in this book as I wrote it is a lot of historians you're probably aware will will talk about it from a national point of view. So they'll talk about Arab conquests or they'll talk about the Berbers and the Moors in Spain mm-hmm. or they'll talk about the Tatar yoke uh, in Russia, the Mongols or the Turks and Persians and so forth. But what you'll find out in the book is that all these different nationalities, even though they had different cultures and languages and so forth, all articulated their invasion against Europe in jihadi terms. They all quoted the Quran, they all quoted Muhammad, they all basically spoke like ISIS and behaved like ISIS. Uh, You get a lot of atrocities that make what ISIS has done look very tame. Okay. Uh, pause, pause with that for, for a moment, Raymond, because that's obviously your specialist area of study and that's, that's what you know most about. But throughout the historic world, there have been empires invading each other and behaving in the most appalling ways. And I've been reading recently about the Inca and the Aztecs uh, that would, uh, with war practices that would chill your blood. Is there anything especially different in the conflict between Christendom and Islam since it was founded that didn't exist between any other major side-by-side conflicting civilizations? Well, the main issue that is being sidelined is that this history doesn't even exist. 
And so this is the point. While I agree with you about, you know, all sorts of civilizations attacking and invading and committing atrocities, this is true. What uh, what is of interest to me is that this very history is very much suppressed. Um, you know, most recently, I was supposed to give a talk about this history, about my book at the War College. Mm -hmm. It was just going to be a military history. And the uh, CARE, the Council of American College, is this, this is West Point, am I right? Well, no, it's in um, it's the U.S. Army War College located in Carlisle Barracks in Pennsylvania. And so the point is all these Islamic activists, some of them with terror ties, started bombarding the college, calling me, who's an Egyptian, a racist, calling them racist, saying that if I speak, you know, the army's going to get radicalized and kill Muslims. And lo and behold, the War College capitulated and canceled the talk. So I tell you that in connection with your question and your observation, because the issue here isn't so much that you know, all different civilizations have done this to each other. The question is that this particular story has been hidden, suppressed, continues to be suppressed. If you read a secondary historian, you know, someone like Karen Armstrong, and you read about the events, and then you compare it to what's in my book, you're, it's a completely different history. And yet her history, uh, which is well received because it comports with what people want to believe, namely a peaceful, tolerant Islam vis-a-vis -a, -vis a barbaric Christian Europe, uh, that becomes popular, even though there's no substantiation to it. Whereas, are, are, you, are you saying there, Raymond? Are you saying then that essentially a lack of focus on this area, the conflict, the historical conflict between Islam and Christendom, is politically driven? Well, absolutely, and it's not just a lack of focus; it's the presentation of the exact opposite. Uh, as I said, if you ask your average person, you know, who obviously is not a historian, but just from what they think about Islam in the West historically, they will begin with the Crusades. They will feel like, uh, you know, it was Christian Europe that started the bad blood and so forth. And this is the exact opposite of what really happened, which, as I was saying, it was Islam that invaded Islam, that chipped at the Christian world until it conquered three quarters of it and continued invading. People will be shocked to realize that Islam was invading as far as Iceland and enslaving people from Iceland, also quoting the Quran, also in the name of jihad. America's very first war as a nation was against Muslims. Hold with that, hold with that in that case. And if you're saying that, that people who are opposing you are politically motivated, is there a degree to which your focus on this is politically motivated as well? Or does it have any relevance to the modern world? Well, I'm not sure what you mean by politically motivated. Uh, it's maybe well, it let, me, let, me, as let, let me let me put it like this. Obviously, and as I see from your from your website, you're saying that the battles that you list span from the seventh century up to the up to the nineteenth uh, century. But is it of academic interest, or does it have a real impact on the twenty first century? Well, I think it has a real impact. I believe what I'm writing about and talking about is legitimate and honest and objective. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, maybe you can say I do have a political aspect in that, as I was saying, I believe that others for political reasons are suppressing it. And I believe it's necessary to have the accurate truth as context for, his, you know, the historical backdrop to understand where we're coming from and where we're going. So I'll sure, give you one absolutely. example. Absolutely. And, you know, Raymond, I'm on your side on that 100%. I think there is no fact that we should be afraid to stare in the face. I agree right. with that 100%. But, of course, there's an, pretty much an infinite number of facts in history. And I'm just concerned that there's a political climate that exists today. Is there a degree to which... Maybe not you, but would you acknowledge that some people focus on the the barbarism 
of the other side historically to justify political motivations today? I can't speak for others, but I'm going to give you the best analogy that I can that I think addresses your concerns. So, Mm -hmm. for example, in the current pseudo, in my opinion, historical narrative between Islam and the West, mm-hmm. uh, as I said, it's presented that Islam was progressive, tolerant, and, 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 and the Christian world was the opposite, crusades, etc. Now, the, the relevance and what the people who present this argument or this history is, they say that basically, well, if that was Islam historically and it was peaceful and we've all accepted that, then obviously modern day radical terrorism has to have another factor. It can't be Islam itself. And so that's why you're always, people are always talking about economics and, uh, you know, illiteracy and grievances as to say that these are the things that propel Muslims or some Muslims, Islamists, to do what they do. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, what I'm trying to do is to say, well, a lot of these questions from an objective historical point are moot. The question that became popular after 9-11, which was, why do they hate us, um, made people think, you know, something must have happened recently, grievances, Israel, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the history that I lay out objectively from primary sources, you find out that, well, actually, no. Uh, that's what the Islamic empires were doing from day one to the West. It's ISIS is just a very minor uh, reflection of all these caliphates and emirates and sultanates who spoke like and behaved like ISIS for well over a millennium. So is there, is there, an, is there this, an element, Raymond, is there an element of I'm trying to you get say, to the point. Oh, go, go ahead. The Don't, uh, go ahead. Uh, yeah. Okay. So the point is that I'm trying to show you that if you look at history, all these questions that people always talk about are irrelevant. There's no need to talk about grievances and economics and this and that. And I'm not not saying that those aren't factors. There are always factors. Mm -hmm. But when you look at it in the history, I see an unwavering line of ISIS-like behavior for well over a millennium. And it doesn't seem to me that we need to obsess about all these other factors because in those days – Muslims were usually more advanced than the West and more wealthy and affluent, etc. And their entire uh, war was articulated as a jihad against the infidel, etc., etc. So that's, uh, you know, to go to your point about politics and who's doing what, I'm trying to present what reality was based on primary sources. Most of the information in my book comes from Muslim sources, oftentimes that I translate in myself as well as, uh, you know, primary European contemporary sources. And they give a very different story than what so many people have accepted. And if you don't, if you follow the false narrative, as most people do, that's premise number one. And you're going to keep building wrong premises on that first wrong premise. So I'm trying to present a more accurate historical premise so people can build on that. Raymond, you're right. I shouldn't have interrupted you because you got to the point that I was trying to guide you. You got there on your own, which is you're you're saying that, correct me if I'm if I'm not interpreting you correctly, but you're saying that there is a line, a thread running through those battles that you list in your book that continues to today. Am am I correct in saying that? No, absolutely right. And I usually I discuss it as a continuity, a nonstop, unwavering continuity between what groups like ISIS say and do and the very, very first line of uh, Islamic jihadis. And, I, and, and this line runs through, as I said, all the centuries in the Arab manifestation, the Berber manifestation, the Turkish manifestation, Persian manifestation, Mongol, Tatar manifestation. They all, when you look at the true sources, quote the Quran, they all say our prophet told us to wage war, et cetera, et cetera. Again, this isn't my words. I mean, this is, again, in primary Muslim 
historical sources. And I think people need to face that and understand its significance to the modern era. Because okay, it's a okay. Hold, hold that thought. Hold that thought in that case. Because I'm aware that there's a, there's a train of thought, which I don't have much sympathy with, which probably um, Edward Said would have described as Orientalism, whereby people, perhaps mostly on the left, have a romanticized view and perhaps over-exaggerate the scientific and cultural advances of the Islamic world, which certainly existed, but there's a, there's sometimes an anxiety to emphasize that and the positive aspects of, of uh, Islam such as they are. And I think that's perhaps a naive attitude. I think it comes from an anxiety to be conciliatory, but I'm sure you'd agree with me that 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 it is sometimes naive and sometimes inappropriate. Oh, uh, I absolutely agree. Yeah. Uh, okay, but would you agree also that on the opposite side of the current political debate that we have, there's also a tendency to say in that history, over a thousand years long, as you say, in that history, there's a tendency to say all of our massacres were triumphs and all of their triumphs were massacres. Um, That's kind of poetic. (laughs) Can you kind of explain what that last, what do you mean by their massacres and our massacres? I'm not, sorry. what What that means is that perhaps you're seeing that through a motivated prism as well, that yes, that, uh, my that, motivation. Yes, I, there, I do have a motivation. My motivation is to rec- set the record straight. That's my motivation, and that's why I don't use my words. This isn't my argument. I bring, I, like I said, I have consulted well over two hundred sources. I have over a thousand quotes and citations from people who lived in the era. So this isn't mm-hmm. my conjecture. Uh, do I have a motivation? Absolutely. And it's to set the record straight so that f- we can build on the record and have a clearer understanding. But as long as your first premise, as I said, is false, then everything you build atop it is also going to be flawed. Uh, so that's my uh, – but it seems like uh, maybe you're saying that I want to paint it always evil. It's all bad. It's all bad. Uh, and certainly I think there are a lot of people on the other side, on the anti-Islamist side, who probably go maybe a little overboard. Um, I don't believe in that. And I personally don't do that. I don't do that in the book. The book, for instance, just to give you an idea, it has been very much um, endorsed by professional American military historians and historians of the era, crusade Mm -hmm. historians, historians of the Reconquista. They've all endorsed it. So it's not some crazy, you know, let's demonize Muslims type thing. It's it's a book that puts out the facts, quotes the sources. And if it ends up making Muslims look less than rosy, you know, that's out of my hand. Uh, that's um, it, I didn't make it that way. That's just oh, okay. what history okay. reports. Okay, pa- pa- pause with that for a moment. And uh, yeah. I agree, and I agree because I'm in no position to do otherwise because you're much more of an expert historian on this era than I am. But would you agree that if one were motivated to do so, let's say take the Roman Catholic Church, one could write a history of everything from the Spanish Inquisition to the child abuse scandals covered up by the Vatican going into the 21st century and draw a very, very poor image of the Catholic Church. Or one could, if they wanted, if they wanted to, go through and uh, show all of the charitable works and so forth of the Catholic Church. So selecting which facts to concentrate on, that 
in itself can be highly pejorative. Without ever telling a lie, one can spin things very negatively or very positively. That's true, isn't it? Well, you know, the analogy is, is right and wrong, depending on how you apply it. In the case of what I'm, I'm discussing, the bottom line, I discussed this in the introduction, the fundamental root problem between Islamic civilization and the West, or actually and every, anyone who's not Muslim, is a doctrine. It's a teaching in the Quran that has sort of a tribalistic aspect. It's called in Arabic, and it basically means Muslims must always side and help fellow Muslims. And they must always have hostility and wage war for the infidel because the infidel is Allah's enemy. And I, I put all the doctrines in the introduction about that. And so from that position, what Islam has done vis-a-vis -vis the non-Muslim world, it, it, it has been always violent. I'll give you an example. Zakat, you know, the Muslim uh, giving alms, which mm -hmm. is a, it's a, it's a Muslim, one of the pillars. Not many people know that you're actually Muslims are forbidden to give any alms to non-Muslims. It doesn't mm. matter if that non-Muslims on the street dying. You can't help him because he's the enemy. So from that prism, uh, there is no good. I can honestly tell you that Islam did vis-a-vis non-Muslims because they are fundamentally the enemy. Now, if you want to say, well, maybe Islam did some good to its own people, et cetera, et cetera, that may be the case. But it really is far out of the purview of my book. I mean, there was so much stuff I, I couldn't even include in my book just for space purposes that was applicable. Uh, but, you know, as far as Islam and in its own as an enclosed civilization to its own people, well, anyone can judge that any way they want. And that's fine. But that wasn't the, the uh, topic of my book. Okay. Uh, one other topic I want to raise with you. I see that you've written many, many articles for the Gatestone Institute appearing on their website. And I actually have tried to get in touch with the Gatestone Institute a couple of times to talk to them because I have a podcast pretty much every week and it's good to get a variety of voices. But I had one particular question that I would have loved to put to them. And since I've got you on the line, I'm going to ask you, but I'm going to just play this one very short clip from somebody else from the Gateshorn Institute, Soren Kern. I'll get you just to listen to this. There's essentially areas where immigrants are completely separated from um, the host country and where, um, in some cases, Islamic Sharia law is the, um, the law of those particular areas. And what he's referring to there is areas in European uh, cities where there are Muslim immigrants. And I think it's inspired by what he was saying. This is one clip from Tucker Carlson on Fox News. In these zones, there are virtually no non-Muslim residents allowed. Supposedly, Sharia law reigns supreme and even police try and stay away. The obvious thing that a journalist would do when they're fact-checking something like that is to say, where are those no-go zones? Now, I'm based in Europe. I know that's completely untrue. And I'm not going to try and, you know, hold you responsible for what somebody else said. But it doesn't present a very good image for people to be saying things that are demonstrably untrue. Well, uh, I'm glad you're not putting me on, on uh, you know, making me responsible because no, again, not, I, no. I'm not the one who made that. And I, I don't even know those people, but I have heard the same I, I thing. I guess you've heard of Tucker Carlson. Yes, no, no. I've heard of I've heard of him, but I've and I've heard what you're talking about said repeatedly mm -hmm. that there are no go zones and and uh, it's and so forth. Um, you're basically, I guess, you're saying you've been all around Europe and you've checked out on all these areas and cities that they've mentioned that they don't exist. Mm -hmm. uh, if that's the case, then that's the case. But I've I've heard otherwise. I've been to certain places in Europe 
where I've seen very concentrated amounts of uh, Muslims and migrants. Um, I could I didn't stay there long enough to say, you know, if no non-Muslim is there or what the case may be. Well, well actually, what I, what I did, what I did, Raymond, was, was, was I, searched, I, I searched the Gateshead Institute website to see if there was any suggestion. And there was one web, one article which said that, uh, named some places, the first of which was a place called Neukölln in Berlin. And I lived in Neukölln in Berlin for five years and I can be pretty certain it's not a no-go zone where Muslims are not allowed in. Well, you know, if that's the case, then, you know, then you honestly, you know more about this than I do because you're saying you live in those areas. So Mm -hmm. definitely you can, um, you can speak about that way better than I can. All I can tell you is what you know, which is that, yes, I've heard reports say that. And I, I've assumed some of them, like, as you say, Tucker Carlson, one would assume uh, it's authentic. You know, if it, if it came out of him and it's on Fox News, then there must be some truth. But it, I won't argue with you if you tell me you've been there and it's not the case. And I'm happy to say I'm not at the heart of this because I'm, it, <laughs> this isn't what I've been saying or actually coming out of me. So I can't uh, say either or. And you're absolutely right. I'm not, I'm not hanging that on you and I'm not hanging you on that either. But okay. would you take my point that when such obviously false statements are made, that does betray that there's an agenda there? Look, I, I have no problem with you saying that there are people on the opposite side and people who would probably like my work who go overboard and are extreme and exaggerate. I, I believe that is the case. Um, so I, that doesn't surprise me. And I think it's unfortunate. I do think that, you know, the current suppressive censorship climate actually exacerbates that tendency, which is to say that the more people feel afraid or suppressed to speak out at all, the more they become so extreme, sort of a boil over that they, you know, that they get that they say things that are so ridiculous and exaggerated, the more they develop maybe a hatred for Muslims, which is also unfortunate because that's not something I'm trying to produce. Uh, I look at things logically. I'm not out to elicit any emotional response. Um, So definitely, I believe there is the extreme side uh, who I wouldn't want to associate with and who've gone way overboard. But again, you know, that shouldn't that shouldn't uh, conceal the fact that there are some certain real issues that we need to discuss and bring out in the open. Yeah, I, I, first of all, I absolutely agree there are issues that need to be discussed. I absolutely agree that there are weasel words on the left, particularly when it comes to the clash between women's rights and rights of religious minorities like Muslims in minorities in the West. But I think that argument, that discussion is not, is also not helped by a very negative uh, view, uh, an excessively negative view that comes from the right as well. Would you accept that? As long if the, if the negative view is, is, is an exaggeration or a lie, then yes, I agree with you. If it is, as I point out, in the context of history with a sort of anti-non-Muslim imperative amongst Islamic caliphates and societies where they're always waging war, subjugating, enslaving the infidel, you know, that's reality. That's history. That's documented. I, if, if it comes out, let it come out. It should come out so we know. See, I'm of the opinion that no matter how ugly a truth is, it should be presented because if you can seal the truth in order in in the hopes that it doesn't create, you know, whatever negative feelings. I think it actually gets worse. And that's what you're talking about. It gets worse in that people start. It's a boil over effect because they can't speak at all. Then they start getting really extreme and really bad and really violent and intolerant. So I think it's good to let it, you know, let it breathe and let it as long as it's honest and let's have a debate. You know, the, the war college when they were when they got so frightened 
from the Islamist advocacy groups, I told them, fine, change my lecture and turn it into a debate and they can bring any historian on their side. And they still wouldn't do that. And that's the problem. I think free speech should be a free speech. It should be a cherished aspect of the society as it once was. And if no one likes it, that's fine. They can show how it's wrong. They can debate it. They can ignore it. Um, but, you know, just to shut it down because it might create some negative picture in and of itself, you know, I find that very antithetical to the spirit of Western civilization and in America, especially. Raymond Ibrahim, author of Sword and Scimitar, thank you very much for talking to me. Thanks very much, William. Never miss a show. Follow at Challenging O on Twitter and like Challenging Opinions on Facebook for updates on each show's contents. Go to the website for sources and links to what we were talking about. And while you're there, please like the show on Facebook, follow at Challenging O on Twitter, and follow Raymond Ibrahim at Raymond Ibrahim 5 and get in touch with me if you can suggest a guest or a topic for a future show. Also, thanks to everyone who's signed up as patrons so far. I really appreciate that. It means I can devote more time to finding interesting guests, to doing research and so on. And if you could do the same as them, donate a book or two per podcast or per month. You'll find the link on the website. Also, you can find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer, on your phone or by email. It's all at www.challengingopinions.com. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening.